Hello, welcome to the Dot Metaverse podcast. I'm Ido Siegel, CEO of Touchcast. We're leading the metaverse into the enterprise realm. Join us every week as we explore key themes and ideas surrounding the metaverse. I am so happy to have the opportunity to speak with Denise Jang, uh, who is the managing director of the Metaverse Continuum Business Group and global lead for a responsible metaverse in Accenture. Accenture has been such an amazing partner for many years company of over 700,000 people that somehow manages to stay ahead of the curve. And I think that's attributed to the type of conversation we're going to have uh, about this uh, emerging excitement around the metaverse. AI, I think, is going to be so critical to the metaverse. And people don't really think about this today, but the immersive environments that we need to build for the metaverse, they're incredible you know, AI models, AI machine learning tools that can be used to generate these highly realistic or highly creative and totally unrealistic environments. Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ido, for having me. Really, really excited for this conversation. Yeah, we'd love to learn a bit about your personal journey and, and uh, in general and at Accenture and how you arrived at this particular role. Yeah, sure. Happy to share. So I took on this role um, in March when we launched the new Metaverse Continuum Business Group at Accenture. And I'm leading uh, our work on responsible Metaverse. And I know we're going to get into that later on today. But prior to taking on this role, I was head of strategic initiatives uh, for our CEO, Julie Sweet. And prior to that, I um, worked for about 15 years sort of at the intersection of technology, public policy issues, and business. I worked at Business Roundtable, led the innovation and tech work there. I worked at DARPA, at the Defense Department. I ran a couple of AI cyber warfare programs there. Um, and uh, I've also worked on Capitol Hill, drafting cybersecurity legislation and think tanks. I've done the whole DC circuit thing, basically, <laughs> for a while always focused on on tech policy on privacy security issues that uh, I think are front of front of mind for a lot of folks when we think about responsibility in the metaverse so it's really interesting to have that vantage point like if we reflect back on web 1 and the role that legislation had in uh, creating the prominence of the the business sector in the US to embrace the internet and facilitate a lot of that hyper growth i don't know that everyone's aware of the role that legislation had in making that possible do you feel that we're in a similar junction where there's need for new constructs in order for innovation to uh, flourish? For the metaverse, the answer is probably, right? So for well over a decade now, we've been debating the need for a federal data privacy bill in the United States. <clears throat> other countries have already moved in that direction, other other regions. So take, for example, the U European Union, which already has a, a privacy law in place that's pretty comprehensive. But in the US, we just don't have that federal law in place. And so what you have is kind of a patchwork of, federal, of, of data privacy regulations across states, across different jurisdictions, and it creates confusion, it creates inconsistency. And frankly, we need one single standard for the country. And that's gonna be so critical to the metaverse, right? Because the metaverse is the combination of a lot of different technologies. It's the combination of XR, which I think we we all know very well as extended reality, the combination of, of virtual reality, augmented reality. It's going to involve 
lot of new types of data that's collected on users, right? As well as Web3 technologies, you know, crypto technologies, blockchain technologies, combined with artificial intelligence, where there's, you know, frankly, a lot of different privacy, fairness, bias issues at play. And we need a data privacy law to govern all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, there's a lot of issues around even child safety, online safety, um, security online. And, And what you see right now is just a real sort of patchwork and governing web two, right? And and web one before that, if you want to call it web one. And so as we enter this new era of the metaverse and web three technologies, I think it's time for us to really think hard about what is a framework? What is a legal regime that puts in place protections for consumers and consistency for companies so that we can innovate while making sure that folks' privacy, security, all the really important stuff uh, as it relates to our online presence is adequately protected. Yeah, that's such a deep well of uh, challenge. Uh, do, you, do you view the GDPR European model as uh, an example of success? What is the cost of that legislation in terms of dampening innovation? Like, how do you balance? Do you think they've done a decent job in Europe? Yeah, I think on GDPR, there's there's much to like and there's also much to dislike. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that at this point, a lot of companies, you know, especially global companies like Accenture and our clients, they have come around to figuring out how to comply with GDPR. But the truth is that GDPR does create some friction and some really significant compliance barriers, uh, compliance burdens, especially for like smaller companies, you know, startup that, you know, I think I think we could be <clears throat> taking a, a, a more concerted approach to addressing privacy um, that is that is perhaps just a little bit less burdensome, but still an adequate level of protection. So for example, today, you know, if you go online, visit any website, you're going to get these banners. Do you accept cookies? No cookies. Do you accept the, the tracking cookies or just the strictly necessary ones? And the user experience now is like pretty disjointed. There's a lot of friction there. I find it personally very annoying to go through that every time. Yeah. And that was in part, you know, a product of GDPR. So if we could do it again, would we still have the banners or we have some other type of interface or some other type of way to obtain that type of consent from users? Right. And then, you know, just the compliance piece of it as well. I think I think there's a, there's a lot of assessment. There's a lot of uh, analysis. There's a lot of mapping of data. Um, very, very critical. But in terms of the specificity with regard to how that's done by companies, <laughs> just creates a lot of you know, paperwork. Um, that said, I think, I think we're still seeing a fair amount of innovation. I think that generally speaking, it's a decent model for security. I'm sorry, for privacy, for data protection Mm -hmm. overall. And it would be good for the U S to consider putting, putting in place a federal law that, uh, enables some degree of adequacy with the European law, right. So that there can be kind of a level playing field. It's really interesting that when you start peeling the the layers of the onion uh, of the phenomenon, you, it does come down to what is the incentive system that's in place for the operators and how that breeds bad actors versus activity that's more aligned with what we imagine to be ethical an ethical future. So what's your view of, of that, the incentive system and how it might change in this future that that we're looking at right now? relative to, let's say, the incentive system that Facebook has. Do you see a change potentially? 
I would love to find a way to, to, to enable a change. Let me take security as an example. Sometimes people don't always think when they talk about incentives, they want their mind goes to marketing and ad tech and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But security is actually a really good example of how you see sort of the economic incentives actually really favoring the attacker, right? Really favoring the bad guys because the amount of investment, the amount of, of effort that it takes to launch, let's say a cyber attack on a, on a platform or on accounts is relatively low compared to the amount of investment that's needed to adequately protect yourself. And so there you have this incentive structure where very easy to do bad, you know, malicious activity, very hard, very expensive to protect against it. Mm-hmm. And we need to like fundamentally sort of change that equation and think about how to make it much more expensive for bad actors to do bad things and hopefully also drive down the cost of, of what it takes to protect yourself. And so that means developing software from the start in a secure manner, privacy by design, right? It means working with law enforcement to ensure that they have the adequate tools to go after malicious cyber actors. And I, I talk about this, you know, this is obviously very relevant in the online web two space that we're all familiar with today. But I think with the metaverse, we have an opportunity as we're architecting it now, as we're designing the standards now, as we work across the ecosystem to build that security in from the start and fundamentally shift those economic incentives from the very beginning. If you're talking about you know, some of the other topics, maybe when it comes to mind in terms of incentives about content that we see online and what type of content people engage with, what type of content people gravitate toward, what goes viral. I think that there are a set of incentives that currently exist right now that uh, enable a lot of content that have limited societal value, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, gain a lot of traction. And I think that that there's also incentive structures in place that drive people to want to post things or share content that gets clicks rather than uh, content that may be more authentic or maybe more truthful or maybe more valuable. You know, obviously there are different different definitions of value and utility in this context. But I've heard really thoughtful, you know, remarks given by uh, former CEO of Twitter that talks about how if he could do it again, would he have used, would he have designed that like heart button or the thumbs up button, right? And and the count in terms of the number of likes with regard to a post. And now, for example, even on Instagram, you can hide the number of likes or you can hide the number of comments. And it just, it's really interesting to see how that changes behavior, people engaging with the content, how they how they perceive the content, how they value the content. And um, I think we need to be doing a lot more experimentation like that to understand what are the design features we want to use for the metaverse to nudge the right types of outcomes um, and prevent kind of a dystopian future where everything online is clickbait. Reflecting on the challenges of Web2 and social media as you have, I I recall when, when it was rising, the practitioners, myself included, I'm sure you were there cheering and on as well, we thought that this was a way to democratize and give power and voice to, to people. 
uh, because the world we came from had a small number of kind of monopolistic voices represented by big media. And there wasn't really a lot of room for alternative narratives or, but if uh, we kind of know what happened with that, this, this dream of democratization was weaponized uh, in some ways. And generally I feel that, and this is a, something I struggle with is like the need for kind of a, and I'd be interested in your vantage point based on your history of looking at things at the macro level from a government perspective and, and also at Accenture, which employs people all around the planet. It's not a U.S. centric uh, necessarily uh, mindset or culture. It's global. What is the value of having, um, you know, a single narrative? And this goes back to what is, you know, because that creates the cohesion, right, for for society. Uh, and, and I think in many ways, the challenges, the societal challenges faced in the Western world with polarization are a result of bifurcation into these smaller pockets of narratives. And so people are living in these alternative universes and they all think that the other universe is completely false, <laughs> uh, regardless of which fishbowl you're living in. For me, I kind of struggle with the, the nostalgia of appreciating a world in which we all read the same newspaper and had a sheer narrative, right? Because you... Now we don't have that. So I just wonder if we look at the metaverse and this decentralization, uh, which takes that even further, right? Because it's, there's literally no, they're there. It's all decentralized. It's not like, do you, do you struggle with the same kind of uh, equation of balancing between having a shared narrative and having the long tail of democratizing the voice and, and giving people their own narrative? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I have thoughts about it, but I don't know that I am an authority to speak on sort of what is the right approach because I can see both sides as I, I believe you can as well. Um, on one side, I think having a single narrative is stabilizing. It's helpful in many ways to create a harmonious kind of society. At the same time though, you want to create opportunities for all sorts of narratives, for people to fully express themselves and their ideas and ideology. And so part of me thinks, gosh, like let the court of public opinion dictate which narrative wins at the end of the day or which narratives really gain traction. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think it's when certain narratives have maybe unintended consequences or even intended are directly linked with malicious intent to spread disinformation or to um, that results in people taking harmful actions against themselves or their communities or, or, or others. Those are the types of things we really need to focus on combating and not necessarily on litigating which narrative should be the single narrative or the set of narratives that society, you know, that, that government deems to be the right one. Because I would hate to live in a world where, where, where some central authority tells everybody what they need to think and believe, right? Right, right. But I think it's that it's that public safety piece. It's that public health piece. It's the piece that um, where there's violence or there's harm or, you know, where, where narratives may generate those types of outcomes where we need to pay much, much closer attention to what's the right thing to do. 
And it's even there, it's not so clear. In your experience, do you intuitively feel that the arbiter needs to be the government's and legislation or self-policed by the, let's say, the technology companies building these platforms versus external external legislation? Yeah, I, I think that for the most part, the government should intervene when harm or damage reaches a certain threshold that requires intervention, where market forces are not adequately driving a fair outcome or an outcome that is just. That's when the government, I think, ought to play a bigger role. And I know we're talking very so philosophically here. No, maybe you have an example for our listeners because you're you're you you really live in this policy world. Like, is there an example you can reference that is a good example of what success might look like? Not not specifically to solve this problem. In the sense, it's very thorny, but just maybe as an analogy. Yeah. So take for example, crypto, yep. cryptocurrency. Right. Cryptocurrency is gaining a lot of traction and getting a lot of attention in the media today. Mm-hmm. It's been around for quite a long time, though, actually, and. In just the past couple of years, it's really gained attention in the mainstream. And um, for the most part, it's been unregulated. And Congress has not paid much attention to the risks, the opportunities, and what kinds of regulations need to be put in place until the last year, I would say, where you've seen a number of major uh, events take place with crypto companies getting hacked, people losing their wealth, a lot of innocent folks getting hurt. And it's because this industry as a whole has become large enough and the user base is has reached a, a threshold where it's time for the government to think about what's its role in putting in place a set of regulations to ensure consumer protection, to ensure that innovation in this space happens responsibly, and to dictate kind of a standard so that startups, so that companies, you know, in this space can all innovate to sort of a, a common set of, of guidelines and, and standards. And that actually drives innovation. So so I think like crypto is actually a great example of this. Probably a ton of examples also in the financial services space and the environmental protection space. There's the trend is always new technology is disruptive and it's largely unregulated, you know, ungoverned for some period of time until it reaches a certain threshold in terms of harm or issues around inequities where the government then believes it needs to step in. So I think we're starting to reach that point now with crypto. It's interesting. Uh, when you reflect on, again, going back to 98, 99, beginning of the internet boom, things like the Digital Millennium Act, where government stepped in before the revolution that happened, there was somehow there was a mobilization of government to enable something that created a lot of growth, a tremendous amount of growth, and in the U.S., a major leadership. And it's it's kind of hard to phantom how that happened when you look at the situation, let's say today, and you listen to congressional hearings about crypto. And, and I don't hold them against. For for me as a practitioner, it's hard to follow the rapid evolution of the space. How do you expect a public servant? who's risen risen to prominence because they're a good politician to understand these technologies, it's practically impossible. Uh, so you end up with a lot of lobbying and a lot of special interests kind of moving the conversation forward. And that could end up 
being a good progressive outcome, but it could also be a very dangerous place because it's very hard to steer for these governmental organizations because they don't really have a good understanding. So for me, what's happening in regards to the crypto space right now is very much a response to some very bad outcomes, kind of like when we have financial crisis. But it, it is, I think, a, a big challenge to find that balance between uh, risk mitigation and protecting people, but also creating an environment for prosperity and leveraging technology for growth of economy, right? It's like, how do you how do you strike that balance? What has you been your experience being in those halls in, in Washington? Like, are you jaded about it? Or do you feel, do you have some optimism that there is a way to, to navigate that towards a good outcome? I think a lot of people feel jaded right now about the prospects for passing legislation on a number of different topics that matter to them. But I still have hope. I think that our legislative branch is designed to be one that is very deliberative and that, you know, it does take a long time to debate the law, to draft the law, to vote on the law, amend it and get it ultimately passed. And, and I, I think that there's some benefit to that, right? Um, because it means that there's a very thorough process that enables stakeholders from all different parts of society to get involved, to engage, to provide their feedback. Uh, our public hearing process is, is one that is really, really important to our democracy. Um, it doesn't make policymaking or lawmaking fast. In fact, it really slows it down. There's also just a lot of partisanship today than, than back in the 90s, I would argue, that slows things down as well. But by design, the process itself is meant to be deliberative. It's meant to be to have a lot of these checks and balances in place. I would say on an earlier comment that you made about sort of, you know, these technology issues are really complex. And how do you expect lawmakers to engage on these topics? That's so true. And that's why you are starting to see some organizations, you know, foundations, think tanks, nonprofit groups, creating opportunities to bring technologists into government. You know, people that have experience building technology, uh, running technology companies that really understand how it works and how it impacts users, trying to bring them into government to help shape laws, shape public policy. And I think that's more needed than ever. There are wonderful programs out there already supporting this, but frankly, we need to probably grow those and get more technologists into government and, and helping you know, uh, our lawmakers uh, grapple with these really difficult issues. When you chose this portfolio with the metaverse after doing uh, all of these interesting things, what excited you about this opportunity? What I understand the aspect of the, the challenges we talked about relative to the need to develop a, a, a protective posture to prevent bad things from happening. But on the flip side, what is the part that excites you about it and, and makes you want to say, I'm going to spend the next few years of my life helping navigate this uh, new domain? So when I worked at DARPA, we were experimenting a lot with 
XR, actually. Back then, we didn't call it XR. We called it gamifying fill-in-the-blank X, Y, right? And I remember back then, we had worked with Oculus. This was before Facebook acquired them to get early prototypes and really experiment with it in different domains. And at the time, it felt so, so novel. It also felt like so far away in terms of actually becoming a thing. Now, today, when I had this opportunity, and more recently, I had this opportunity to work on Metaverse, it just made me remember back to the time when we were just beginning to experiment with with Oculus at DARPA. And um, the the feeling of that enormous potential now actually coming becoming a reality. And today, you know, it, anyone can use this technology. Anyone can engage with it. At Accenture, you know, we have tens of thousands of people now who are working with TouchCast and some of that, right, to, to enable our people to collaborate and meet up and uh, host, you know, immersive events in the metaverse. It's a reality now. And so it just feels so, so exciting to me. And then when you look at the metaverse and all of the, if you, if you just aggregate actually the metaverse and think about what are the component technologies that sort of come together to form it, it's, it's really the XR piece that we talked about, but it's also Web3 and it's, it's artificial intelligence, as I mentioned earlier. And each one of these things, they have unique challenges. And I've worked on different bits of them, you know, in, in, in various elements of my career previously, like, for example, on Responsible AI, where through the Business Roundtable, we put together a roadmap for Responsible AI that, you know, 200 plus CEOs of the largest companies in America signed on to. All these things come together in this beautiful way in the metaverse. And so when the opportunity arose, I thought, yes, this is, this is the combining of so many interesting things that have such significant impact on the future of technology, but also how humans interact with technology. So it was a no-brainer for me. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the intersection between AI and the metaverse. Like, where do you see those, that Venn diagram? Like, where do you see the utility of the connection between those two things? AI, I think it's going to be so critical to the metaverse. And people don't really think about this today, but the immersive environments that we need to build for the metaverse, they're incredible, you know, AI models, AI machine learning tools that can be used to generate these highly realistic or highly creative and totally unrealistic environments, right? Like there's, there's just, there's, there's a ton of innovation in this space. So AI is going to be used to sort of build immersive environments. It's, also, you can imagine a future where you're interacting with avatars that may be AI-driven avatars. There's good and bad to that. But you can imagine like a future where maybe instead of watching streaming video that's on a flat screen and you're just watching characters, actually it's AI actors and you can participate in the movie or the show as if you were interacting with them in real in real time. I mean, how incredible is that, right? It does raise some interesting ethical questions, a lot of very interesting ethical questions, but this is the future. Um, and, you know, we'll probably need to have a debate someday about whether or not uh, there, there should be AI bot disclosure requirements in the metaverse so that you know if you're dealing with a real human or an AI. Yep. 
Um, another way in which to think about the use of AI is, you know, today we have, you know, tools on our smartphones and our computers that help us complete a sentence. It predicts what you might want to say. Well, can you imagine an AI that actually helps to augment your avatar in the metaverse? You could like toggle back and forth between the real you and then the AI enhanced version of you, right? Really, really interesting. Yes, yes. Really interesting ethical questions as well. <laughs> so. Yeah, I totally see that. And it is very exciting. I'm curious about your thoughts about the opportunities for economic inclusion for societal change like how do we not repeat the same mistakes that we made in the in the past how do we create an environment that does create economic opportunities for people in this emerging landscape i think the metaverse can be both a great sort of democratizing technology a, a sort of equalizer in some ways and then it also has the potential to further exacerbate inequality. And I think both can happen at the same time, even in different pockets. So it's interesting, a couple months ago, a colleague of mine forwarded a, a video and it featured a homeless man in the metaverse. And the message was, you know, people are spending millions of dollars buying virtual land and million, you know, thousands of dollars on virtual purses, virtual shoes. And yet a homeless person, you know, can't even afford to buy a sandwich in the real world. So before we invest all this money in building the virtual world, why don't we make a better world today in real life? And that's, that's a really, you know, I think it was, it really hit me actually when I saw that. Yep. And and made me start to think about, okay, what do we need to do to ensure that the metaverse is truly inclusive and that we're building this in a way that is that is equitable? And I think from the start, it means that the people who are designing it, the people who are building it, it needs to be diverse and inclusive from the start. We need those voices involved in in architecting this thing, in in putting together um, the initial blueprints, every aspect of it, right? Um, so, so teams need to be diverse and inclusive. Um, the second thing is we need to be focused on experiences that create more opportunity, whether it's education. I mean, the, the, the potential for metaverse to transform education from, you know, um, elementary school all the way up through you know, graduate school, it's tremendous and it could be enormously democratizing. And I think the metaverse can also, because of its very embodied and immersive nature, help improve understanding as well, because you can put yourself in the shoes of somebody else in this immersive, immersive environment and have a, a much more visceral feeling of what it's like to live their life. And, and, and I think it's focusing on these use cases. So it's, it's designing the metaverse, using inclusive teams, thinking about inclusion, accessibility, these equity concerns from the start. But then it's also even thinking about the use cases. How can you invest in uses of the metaverse that are good for society, that improve education, that improve access? And so that's what I'm really excited about. Yeah, thank you for articulating that. That's really inspiring. 
and uh, rings very true to me. And uh, I think for many of the listeners, is because uh, I, I think the challenges we always face with with uh, new technology revolutions is that there's so much to be afraid of, and there's so much to to kind of protect against. But then all these things are always driven by having some kind of a north star of hope and aspiration, and it's important not to get that drowned out. Um, and the way you articulated, uh, I really felt uh, felt that that the, this sense of um, of mission that we have as practitioners to to make those type of things happening. And personally, I do fear that apart from the kind of economic polarization we have, we also have there's a bit of a sense that the the people building this stuff is kind of like the the priest class, you know, that ha- understand Latin and are kind of driving the power system and. It's not really the the people that are using it. And it echoes back to the question of legislation, specifically when you talk about things like AI. This, these are not simple things, and I actually feel that there is uh, an increasing polarization of real understanding, where the power is moving into smaller and smaller uh, number of companies that are have capacity to do things that others don't uh, in terms of that, those technologies. I'm talking specifically about AI companies like Google and that's so far ahead of everyone else. Do you have a, a view on that and, and, and what one can do to help level the playing field so that it doesn't create, because it's not good for anyone, including Google in this case, if we use them as a scapegoat, uh, that there's such a big gap in terms of, uh, when we talk about inclusion, like the person that's living on the street is not going to be involved in figuring out AI bias on a training model, right? So it's like, how do we, it's, but even in everything in between from a startup to being a big company that can spend $10 million on training a model, just interesting your point of view on that. I think you're right that AI does favor in some ways the incumbents or those with enormous resources and access to data and compute power. The metaverse may be an exception to that when you think about the metaverse more holistically. When you really sort of begin to look at who is driving innovation in the metaverse, of course, the big companies are there and they're playing a huge role, especially on the device side, I would say. But in terms of the content creation, world creation, the use cases, a lot of that really exciting innovation is happening because non-traditional players are getting involved. New creators are getting involved. You know, uh, entities that maybe would not be considered part of the the priesthood class that you just mentioned. And I think that makes the metaverse a bit different from previous iterations of the Internet, where it really was dominated by an ultra elite set of technologists, engineers, developers, you know, and companies. We we see a lot more diversity. I mean, if you just look at who is most engaged in the metaverse, it's young people, it's black people, and it's Hispanic people. It's truly, you know, different user base even when you think about technology platforms. So I, I think that that so there's there's real potential there, I would argue, for this to be more equitable, more inclusive than previous iterations, just because of the nature of who's who's being pulled into the metaverse and who's helping to create and shape this thing. The incumbents will have a huge role though. 
I don't know what you think about that. If you've witnessed the same trend. As, as an, as an enabler and a builder, uh, I, I always feel because I've been doing this for so many years that I've, I've gotten to the point in my life where I realize I'm just part of a continuum. It's not about, it's not, I don't see myself as just that a person that's making decisions and building stuff. I understand that I'm servicing a bigger continuum that we're all on. And many people are working on the same thing at the same time. And I always feel that we do have a responsibility to ask ourselves just because we can do something is not a reason to do it. And which the engineering mindset is if we can do it, we should try to do it. Right. But there's so many, uh, ramifications to our actions. But again, I think the way you articulate it is is inspiring and, and optimistic. And I think that's the only way to move forward. Like you need that to be able to navigate this uh, and and find the right way. But but really be aware of like be self-aware. And I think it's really important for, for technology companies and technologists to be increasingly more and more self-aware because the, because of the polarization, right? So that there's not a lashback that creates um, kind of a dark ages, you know, could really happen. Like if you, and there is need for more empathy and understanding and conversations like this. And hopefully our listeners will agree. And are there resources or books that you've read that you think are really good, insightful that that you would recommend for our listeners if they're interested in in this area that have inspired you? That's a really good question. I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Yeah. Maybe we we can add some stuff to the show notes. We should be interested given your, the way you think about it, what, what inspires you and maybe other thinkers and people that you've uh, also spoken to so that we can allow people that are listening to continue like this thoughtful uh, journey into, into this, because it really does require, uh, I believe the, that level of, of thought. We're very fortunate to have the time to spend with you and, and talk about these things. And thank you so much uh, for sharing your wisdom with our audience. And uh, it's been really lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and uh, I love, I love that uh, you put your finger right on it, which is that there's a, I think a greater self-awareness today than we did when we entered social media, you know, back in the 20 early 2000s, 2006, I think 2005 was when, when it first came out. And it's that self-awareness. I think we know what the harms are. We know what can go wrong. And the point is to learn from those mistakes, have a North star and fix for them now. And I, I'm really hopeful we can do it. Um, and I want to thank you for, for hosting this discussion. It's, it's been a lot of fun and hopefully we can do it again. Start your dot metaverse journey today. You can claim your .metaverse Web3 domain for free right now at touchcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Subscribe today to stay up to date with our latest episodes.